This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Thank you. So first, I want to welcome those of you who have joined in real time. You landed in the TGIF DCT Clubhouse which we host every week at this time. It's Friday noon Eastern time for about an hour with members who are from the whole community interested in modernizing clinical trials. And the topics vary week to week. They're very much curated by the audience, by our members, by what we see out in the world. And so the first thing I want to do is encourage you, if you have a topic that you'd like to hear us talk about, or if you want to be a speaker, please just reach out to us at secretariat at dtra.org or go to our dtra.org homepage and make a simple ask. We love hosting people and we really look forward to the diversity of topics. I'll just give you a shout out for a couple of things that are coming. Next week I believe we're going to have a session that's primarily focused on data around DCTs in oncology and the week after that I believe we are going to have a session with some academic research organizations talking about their their current efforts to initiate decentralized trials specifically with the purpose to improve access for patients living in remote areas of the United States. But both of those topics came to us because the folks who are working on those topics wanted to talk about them and hear from you, the audience, get your questions, get your learnings, and really share. That is why we come to the clubhouse. One other comment I'll make is that if you didn't know, now we offer this not just live in real time, but the sessions are recorded and available on the, all the podcast platforms that you might be using. So you can listen at will on an airplane, in your car, wherever you choose to digest your podcasts. But we really look forward to that too. And we've had some great feedback from people about sessions that they went back to from some time ago. I think we have more than a year's worth of episodes in podcast form now. 
Okay, Amir, what have I missed around where we are today? And then I'll get to introducing the topic. I think we're good, we can get going. Okay. So today, um, Amir and I are very pleased to be joined with a special guest, Christine von Reisfeld, who is a patient. And Christine, Amir and I have known each other for a while. Definitely Amir has known Christine longer than I have. But I think so often while we are focused on trying to drive solutions and change in clinical trials on behalf of patients, we don't always get to hear from patients. And that's why it's a real privilege for me to be here today with Christine and let her tell you a bit about her story our topic today is really about how patients and their data might actually be a key to empowering participation in research and clinical trials and some of the considerations that need to be addressed. And uh, we're going to go through a few different questions with Christine and let her share her story. I'll, I'll ask you questions as we go, and I'm sure Amir will too, Christine. And then at about 30 minutes into the hour, we will open the mic. So those of you in the audience who have questions can raise your hand and we'd be delighted to welcome you up so that you can either share your experience or ask your question to Christine. Okay, what have I missed now? Anything? <laughs> I think you've covered everything. And I'm glad that you'll be asking me questions because as you know, and many people in this room, there is so much to talk about and I need to stay focused. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough. So I'll get us started here and, and let's just frame out the context. Um, sure. First, Picture yourself in the audience when when you went to the physician, where wherever that was last time. Mm -hmm. Did you get and Christine? This is remember how we talked about this earlier. Yeah. This is more like as a patient, not you, Christine, but all of us. When you mm -hmm. went to the doctor the last time, did you get a clear visit summary? Did it get integrated into your record? Is it something that you can access easily or share? Now, just take a moment and think about that yourself. Yeah. And I'm going to suggest it's probably highly variable, probably depends on the data that would accompany that visit. It also and, depends on the doctor as well, Jane. Oh, yeah, for sure. So when we think about patient data and access, I want you to start that thinking really with the frame of, it is inconsistent, even in the US, even with um, electronic medical records as a mandate. What you have from your clinical care probably varies amongst us, even in the audience, and maybe within your own records. Yeah. Now, if we start thinking about how we might actually be able to imagine a future where patients are decision makers about who has access to their data and how that might open up channels to participate in research and trials, it means we're going to be dealing with some incongruities and inconsistencies. 
but the vision that Christine and I are interested in um, talking about today is really shifting things so the patient becomes at least the initial decision maker about participating in research or trials. And Amir, I'd, I'd love your input on that as a physician and then as an innovator in healthcare and research before we dive into some of the details. Which particular aspect? Well, what would you think about patients becoming the decision makers on having their data and making it accessible to others? Um, well, I, I think from my point of view, considering the data is really the patient's data, I don't see why they wouldn't be decision makers about who has access to it, right? So I, I think that's perfectly fair. I think that's easier said than done. Jane, well, no, can I, I, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, can I give you, give our audience a little bit of a backstory about me as oh, well? Yeah. Because I know you two know me well. Um, but for those of you who don't know me, and I see some unfamiliar faces and some familiar ones, I am, uh, I just turned 48. I am, I have multiple diagnoses, about 40 now in my charts. Half of them I don't think are correct, but we needed a billing code to get through. So I believe that some of those diagnoses were just for that billing code. Um, I've, I was diagnosed with lupus at one point, found two other rare diseases after my diagnoses for lupus after pushing, and there is still an underlying cause that we don't know about. And so I'm still pushing to get to that point of just trying to find that underlying cause. But as you said, my medical records are a mess. My Some of my history is missing. A lot of my physicians don't have proper notes. A lot of my notes, in fact, I got 14 copies or 14 CDs of my medical records recently and tried to sort through that. One of the things that's in there is a lot of these notes are copied and pasted. The very general information about me, and I'll tell you, even my height and my weight aren't taken at every visit that I go to. A lot of the times they just ask me, last time you were here, you were this weight. Is that about right? And so I think when we're looking at the data in even just the medical records, a lot of it isn't correct. And a lot of people don't know how to fix that. There isn't really a way to fix it. I've tried to get diagnoses out of my charts and I haven't been able to do that. So I think in that sense of thinking about the medical records, I've been lucky enough to only be with two hospitals, but I still don't have access to everything. And so even though I've requested, some of the records are missing. Um, they do have partial records. And, and so even when you're in a standard of care where you know it and that's been most of your life, it's still hard to access any of the information. And I'll stop. Oh, that was a really helpful, con I was really hoping you would explain a little bit about that. So that's really perfect. And, and let's reframe just a little bit. Like when we talk about patients having access to their data, we are really talking about EHR, medical records data, not social media data, not financial or insurance data, not the things that could be tracked outside the medical record. Is that correct, Christine? Yeah, just the plain old medical records that we deal with on, you know, with the hospital systems, right? Well, just well. in air quotes. So when you got 14 <laughs> CDs, what was in there? And what format <laughs> did you receive the data in? 
So I got them on a CD and I don't even own a computer that has a CD drive. So I had to go out and buy a CD drive first. Um, once I got that, getting the information, it it's a mess. I'll tell you, in the 14 CDs, it has a section that says labs, but it's not sorted in any real order. It's not by dates. It's really difficult in what I've received. And these are 14 full CDs, right? So thousands of pages of information. And as I was going through them, there's no way to look at them. There's no charts that can give me a graph of everything over the years. It's literally just the numbers that I've gotten. Um, when I look at um, the even between the hospital systems, the discs are scheduled different on one hospital or, or sorry, they're organized different on one hospital than it is to another. And as I was reading through a lot of the physician notes, there were a lot of incomplete notes, incorrect information. They even had my nationality wrong. I'm half Asian, which I know plays into the way I metabolize medications and other things that wasn't listed even. And so just the basics. And I told you one time, one of the doctors, they had me listed as married in my medical records because I had a friend come with me to an appointment. And that might not mean anything to you, but to me that told my physicians and my team that I had social support at home that I didn't have. And I doubt that very many people comb through their records like I've tried to, um, but it's a mess. So let's get... Um, a little bit into the weeds on that. And I'm going to ask you a few questions that may be more yes and no, but you may have totally more fine. information to expand. But first, when you look at your data on the CDs, let's just imagine you got it all into the cloud and it was in one big file. Would you be able to pull out the medications you've received over those records? I would say with some help with some with some help from AI, I probably could. Hmm. Personally, no, I wouldn't be able to do that. But I would also have to know the key terms that I'm searching for. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I could do it in a timely manner that, you know, on my own. Okay. And what about um I heard you mentioned that there were labs in there. What about radiology data or any of those other diagnostic tests? Is that those in are in there. Yeah, those are in there, but the images are on a separate CD from the actual information. <laughs> so that was always fun. So I have a disk of images, but I don't have any description to go along with those images. Those are oh. correlated with the appointment that it was at or whatever review or notes the doctor has. So but you not have directly to linked. find a way to map the imagery to the dates of the visits. Oh, you, okay, that sounds hard. <laughs> and then yeah. um, this might be a little bit different, but I think you've also had some pretty exquisite and unusual genetic analysis done. And can you talk a little bit about the format that you have received that data in? <laughs> So uh, we're on the EPIC platform at Stanford, and it is, I got my pharmacogenomics results. Most people I know have one or two drugs that they metabolize differently, and it's not really a big deal because they may never be on them. I metabolize half of these medications differently, some slow, some fast. Um, it is in my charts, dated in a note from my doctor from February of 2019. And mind you, you have to scroll 
through these medical history, right? You can't put in that date and find it as easily as you think you would be able to. And um, so it's actually going back. And so I had an instance at the ER where I went in, I don't look sick and I don't look like I'm in pain. I've been compartmentalizing for years. But when I went in, for, I asked for a dilated by IV and the doctor immediately uh, labeled me as a drug seeker. Um, he refused to give me the drug. We had a huge discussion. I talked to him about the pharmacogenomics test. He questioned where I got it and how did I know about it and who did this test. Luckily, it was at Stanford. <laughs> and so it was all there, but it it was dated back to 2019. It caused tension between me and the physician who didn't know me at all. You know, I stepped onto his floor. I wasn't a patient of his. And going back to 2019, when we're already in 2023, is difficult. And I've had many physicians, even when I go to see a new specialist, who look at me and say, I can't even get through your records. And so I don't know what to do with that. My plan was to try and and scan it down and try to pick out the bits and pieces of things that I knew were right and make my own version of my medical record with the help of some hackers, but that's in the works. Until then, I'm, I've been struggling. I look at these discs, I get overwhelmed. I see I can't relate because there's no graphs or charts that tell me how I've progressed. And, and nothing is holistic. It's not a holistic view of me. Okay, so <laughs> to, to reframe, you're an unusual and complicated um, medical history patient. And your right. records are even hard for the physician or your care team, I will say, to interpret, access, and act on. Is that a fair yeah. way to say that? Very fair. I'll tell you, even my physicians don't know exactly how to deal with pharmacogenomic results as well. And I, a doctor of mine wanted to write a new prescription. He gave me an option. I said, can you check them in my charts? I want to make sure that I don't have a reaction. And uh, he looked at the note from 2019. He said, Christine, I read it. I still don't know if it's okay. He said, why don't you call someone else? <laughs> and so I did. So I think even sometimes when the information is in the medical records, the physicians who can access them don't necessarily understand how to use them either. Okay, so with all of that said, we've set your context and we know that there's a lot of data there and it's hard to understand and use. Why do you want patients to have access to their data and how do you think it can become part of empowering patients? Okay, so we also said I'm still undiagnosed. Um, and so the reason I want my data is to find answers. It's been 48 years. I've seen hundreds and thousands of doctors over my time. If you look at my records now, I think there's 45 doctors right there in my charts now. And it's gotten so complicated that I don't think anyone can put it together. And that when I've talked to people about it and, you know, we talk about incentives and all of these things, and I think about it in the way that the only person with enough incentive to fix me is going to be me. And so I want my data so that I can gather it. I can, you know, 
I can somewhat understand it. I'm not an expert in my body or what happens, but I do my research. I talk to people. My hope is that um, I can find out some of maybe the mutations or or the clusters that I have in my genetics and share that out with researchers. If I know these clusters and I can do a PubMed search or a Google search for somebody who might be interested in working on this, I would happily share this because I don't know that there's answers out there for me, but I do think a lot of the mess that we've made with me could help things. So I just, for me, I think having access to that data would allow me to put it to different uses, right? I could give it to different people who are working things. I could give it to, I don't know, if there was a, a research hub at Stanford that was working on different things that had a way to give my information out to different clinical trials. We see so many companies out there that do that. If I could freely give that to people to be able to make those medical advancements and, and to innovate in this place, and also to maybe give me a chance at a normal life, you know, I, I would love that. And I think, like I said, the only person that has enough incentive to do this is an individual. I participate in studies all the time that that information could be extremely helpful to my physicians, but I can't get anyone to give it to each other. Well, but if I could have it myself and share it, it would be a different story. Well, when we get into studies and sharing data, that's a little bit of a, um, there's a quagmire. Yeah. There. We'll, we'll get to that in a we'll second. Get, that's later. But even yeah. it just my medical records, if I could share that with other people, if I could, you know, if I could find answers. And I'm, I know I may not find them all, but I don't know. That's my thought. And I'll stop there because we could, <laughs> I want you so, to clarify now. <laughs> how do you think it could help? change the research dynamic and the decision-making for patients who don't have as complicated a medical history as you? Like, what's in it for patients to get this data, and how might that help solve some problems that clinical researchers are trying to work on? Well, I think, think about someone simpler, like, I'm making this yeah. up, and every case is complicated because it's the individual, but... Let's say it's a diabetes patient who has um, cardiovascular complications, not an undiagnosed disease. Yeah, state. Just two conditions. Right. Well, maybe they're one, but we. Anyway, my point is someone who's a more typical patient. Think of the typical patients and how might, if how might it help clinical research, if patients had access to their data and could share it. Okay, let me think about this for a second. If I'm looking at the clinical research aspect of it, I think, first of all, having access to the data and being more informed about what's there also encourages people. Um, I'll say I wasn't interested in any type of research when I was sick. I was with a hospital that didn't offer clinical trials. I didn't even know they were a thing. It wasn't until I got really sick and didn't have any options that clinical trials then came into the into the conversation. Had I known about, you know, more about my health and more about what I was dealing with, I would have participated earlier, right? Um, I'm also half Asian. 
I think when we look at data and patients, we talk about it so individually and siloed. And I think we're missing the point of that, um, that shared data and the bigger model. Um, like I said, I'm half Asian. There's a lot of things that we're finding out affect that population and I'm mixed. And so what I want is, and what I think other people should realize is that that the data is going to help our communities. I think reframing the idea of research and clinical trials needs to be done, but I think the data could help anyone in research, right? If we're looking at diabetes and these cardiovascular, me having access to the data and knowing more about what I have and being able to, to open that up, right? My dad is a diabetes patient. He just developed AFib. He's never considered any type of research or clinical study, um, but he's been learning more about his data. We actually set him up with, um, I forgot the name of the card that had, that you can take your blood pressure on, um, but oh, he's been set up. That's cool. A live core, yeah. So I gave my dad one of those cards and he's been now tracking his data. He's been talking to his doctors and, and how he should collect his data. So he's actually feeding his cardiologist now some helpful information after we got over the whole, you know, hyper activation of his, his testing of himself. But I think he's been able to provide better data to his doctors even, right, knowing how data works and talking to them. And I think if we're looking at the research, he's, he's now considering participating in a research trial for COVID because he, he, de he developed the AFib after COVID. But it, if he didn't know anything about his data, if he wasn't informed about the conditions, I think he just wouldn't have done anything. So I think the data empowers us. And I think that was a long way to get around to that. It, it might, <laughs> but um, let's, let's get real. And there are some differences across different communities, as you said, about the will to share data and where it might go. Um, and of course, there's a big, um, what do we call it, distribution curve of those who are where you are, like take it all, and those who are more in the, I'm not so sure about this. So let, let's just go back to our vision. We want patients to have access to their data and to be able to share it at will. But what would it take to change the will of the people who are in the, I'm not so sure about sharing my data, Christine? Like, what should we work on if we want to make this a call to action for patients across? So I'll tell you, I just recently had a conversation, actually a few months ago now, with a patient who had lupus, who had run out of options on his drugs, and he didn't know what to do, and he called me. And I had told him this was a, or sorry, not called, but messaged, and this was a long conversation, and I told him that there were plenty of drugs and clinical trials that he should look at into them. And his response to me was, I'm not a guinea pig. And I said, well, this is not, you're not a guinea pig. It's gone through this. You know, we had a whole discussion around that. And then his response was, is your life, because I told him I participated in research and studies. And he said, is your life that meaningless that you're willing to give it up for pharma profits? 
And so I think one of the things we have to think about is the idea of clinical trials and the idea of the general population's um, thoughts about it. Like I said, I didn't hear about clinical trials until it became a last-ditch option. And then even then, I was, you know, excluded from most of the studies because of comorbidities. And so I think really having these conversations, yes, privacy and security are huge issues when it comes to data. But I think we need to talk about where it's being used, how it's being used. If we're a company, these things need to be disclosed and, and talked about. And I think the transparency isn't really there. And so having those conversations of where the data is going, how it's being used, and having some kind of benefit back. I'll tell you some of the things that I've participated in. I've actively participated because my study coordinator became my friend. And so I think building that trust, having a benefit to the participants, and also really explaining where the data is being used. I think people look so siloed at data, you know, and they look siloed at their diseases and themselves, and they don't realize the potential that data has for their communities. And so I think we have to reframe the thinking for the general public and, and think more holistically, I think. Think more about the communities and the potential for this, but then also think about those risks involved with data and how do we prepare for those things. If there's going to be a breach, patients should know how that's going to be handled. Um, so just those basics. I'm sure there's a million other things I could touch on. but Christine, those are not basics, my friend. I mean, you touched on <laughs> a lot of things here. One <laughs> was CRACO, Clinical Research as a Care Option. And if I can re, re um, here's what I heard. You might have been willing, but you never even heard that clinical research was an option early enough in your treatment to make it a viable possibility. Is that fair? That's correct. And then I had comorbidities by the time I was aware of them that pretty much excluded me from most things. And then I heard about the trust equation and how there's um, this education and awareness gap in society around clinical research and the development of medicine. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's true. And then personally, uh, my brain kind of exploded when your friend said pharma profits from clinical research. And sometimes that happens, but it also says there's not a clear understanding of the risk um, around clinical trial failure. So he's he's in that space where this will always lead to a benefit for the drug company. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a lot, <laughs> but we have a lot of work to do. Um, we do, but I will say, Jane, that we've gotten a lot further in the short time that I've been in this. And so I think the conversations help and actually engaging patients like this in conversations. So I'm hopeful. <laughs> it's time to reset the room because it's the bottom of the hour. So this, just to make sure everyone knows, this is the TGIF DCT Clubhouse. And we invite you to 
participate by raising your hand, coming up on stage, asking questions or sharing your perspective. And I see a number of people in the audience here. In fact, Renee has her hand raised, but I see a number of people who have actually worked on solving patient awareness and recruitment over their careers. So I'm hoping to hear from some of you up here. And I want you to also take a moment if you don't know people and connect with them here on Clubhouse, maybe on LinkedIn, because our goal in part along with sharing knowledge is to build your network and community. And then I'm going to stop and say, Amir, I've been talking a lot. Um, what would you like to add into the conversation? Oh, I need to make you a moderator. Um, so I've got a much quicker response to your question to um, Christine, which you asked, why, you know, why would the patient want to share? Well, the very basic thing is in many protocols, um, the site has to prove to the sponsor that the patient actually has a validated diagnosis because they're not the treating physician. And most of the time, one of the challenges for sites is it can take months to try and get those medical records from their treating physician by the time it's too late to be in a trial probably. So if a patient actually was able to have access to the record that they could share with a clinical trial that they do know about and want to get into, that to me is a very obvious and practical reason why it would be a good thing. Thank you for bringing that up, Amir, because that's actually um, an effect I've observed in a few DCTs I've been part of, not as a patient, but rather when running DCTs, the patients are willing, but sometimes the access to the medical record for confirmation by the PI takes so long that the patient gets out of the screening window or moves on to a different option. So. I agree completely with your thinking. Renee, welcome to the stage. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and then um, chime in. Thank you so much, Jane. I'm Renee Gruber. Um, I'm kind of talking today about multiple faces of this. I'm actually inpatient recruitment myself. Um, and in the last year, I've helped my, actually year and a half, I've helped my father with a cancer diagnosis. So I empathize greatly with Christine and I see exactly what she's talking about. I shouldn't say exactly, every journey is different. However, I see the disjointed nature of our information and how it impacts patients. And it's extremely frustrating, you know, as someone in the industry who understands a little more, I guess, than the layman, I had an advantage. And even with that, it was very difficult to get records. So I just wanted to say, Christine, I'm sorry for your journey, and I'm encouraged by your passion to make a better situation for pa for patients. So thank you for that as a caretaker and, um, you know, dealing with someone I love who's going through that journey. So I appreciate that very much. And um, Jane, I think you had asked a question, how can patients having access to the data, I believe it was help clinical trials. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So being in patient recruitment, I think one of the easiest things, and Amir just kind of touched on this, one of the most one of the most valuable pieces from my point of view is that it would accelerate recruitment. So say I have an, some type of indication um, battling a disease, and, I, and first of all, if I'm aware of the clinical trials, 
and many people are, we see a lot of people raising their hand when we do outreach on Facebook and through social media. There's a, there's a huge number of people reaching out and wanting to be a part of clinical trials, which is uh, exciting to see. Now, if they had access to their data, it looks like we lost Christine, that's too bad. Um, if we had access to their, if we had access to our own data, we could share that with clinical trial pre-screening recruiters to make it easier to either be included or excluded, you know, and as AI comes about and is going to join the scene, the speed at which this can happen can be faster. And Amir, like you mentioned, you know, if there's official diagnoses that can be shared, just having that in the patient's hands, I think is extremely important. Oh, I agree 100%, Renee. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think that could be the key. When, gosh, I bet all of you have read the studies that say that about 70% of patients say they would be in a trial if they knew about the trial and could find a place to participate. But then if they can't be confirmed by the PI, they can't be in the trial. So that's where the record access could help. I am curious though, and I'll ask it to anyone who has ideas or solutions. Christine raised the point that there are elements of data in her record that are inaccurate um, for reasons say related to insurance or access to meds that had to be coded in a certain way. So. It's interesting to me, is that something we need to, um, well, how do we need to account for that in that world where patients can give us their data? How do you think we can solve for inaccurate information in the medical record? And Jane, can I touch on that too? Because I don't think a lot of people think about this is that I know that a lot of people talk about democratizing the clinical trial process, but if we start doing things like that, um, I have a lot of misdiagnoses. And if, say, I don't know it's a misdiagnosis, how does that even play into the community that I'm in? If I am qualified only by a diagnosis, like let's take lupus, right? Autoimmune condition. I have all 11, I had all 11 criteria, like a lot of patients have most of the criteria. And so if we enter them into a study, but maybe they don't have lupus, right? Maybe it's some other underlying condition. I think we also have to think about how the misdiagnoses in the sense of the patients sharing it back, if it's not correct, how that plays out as well. So you mentioned you um, actually, go ahead, Amir. So to your question, um, what was interesting is Christine, as we can see, is very well informed about, you know, what's going on in her medical record and has been trying for years. And she's going to this tiny little, you know, rural place called Stanford. And that's where she's talking about, right? So imagine what it must be like elsewhere. I mean, I am not a Stanford. I'm at another prestigious uh, healthcare area. My medical record is much simpler than Christine's. Uh, my personal physician is head of concierge med at this very prestigious thing. And I know my medical records, there's some minor things that clearly are not accurate. 
um, in my EHR, I can actually go in and say, this is wrong. Done that a couple of years ago, nothing's ever changed. So uh, if we're at these prestigious places and you know we know how to navigate our way around, and I've certainly never been able to change the inaccuracies, in, and they're not dramatically important, but they're inaccurate. Um, then what chance of other people in less sophisticated healthcare systems, frankly? Hmm, that's interesting <laughs> to me, Amir. So both you and Christine have requested changes to your medical record, and it hasn't occurred. Yep. Is that yep. a summary? Yeah. The only thing I've ever gotten changed was the fact that I'm not married and I'm half Filipino now. <laughs> I guess this is why you still need the PI to, well, one reason <laughs> that we really do need investigators to verify patient eligibility in trials. But if they're doing it on the basis of the medical record alone, I guess we just have to be a little careful. Hmm. Um, Didn't but, mean to bring up another question to your question. Sorry. <laughs> no, that, I think that's a realistic consideration. And um, Amir, I'm at the same institution Christine mentioned and actually in a fight to get my medical record, although it's part of the law now. And I think it's interesting because I noticed there are a number of providers now solution providers who are offering these services to patients to aggregate their medical record into digital format and give it back to the patient so they can then share it. But I wonder how often they encounter problems getting the records released when the patients ask for that to be done. I'm experiencing problems. I'm curious if anyone else on the stage or in the audience has had that problem. Uh, I'm on Medicare review right now, and they weren't able to access two of my records from two parts of the institution. They had some, but not all. And and that was the government requesting from the hospital. What do you mean they didn't have access? You mean someone denied them I access? Mean, it just says that they did not have access, and it lists off a couple records. I'm confused, but yeah, I was confused too, because I gave them full access to all of my medical records. I signed all the forms. And then when I got my review back at the end, it said, we made this decision based on these records, but we weren't able to attain, obtain these records. Hmm. Okay. So it is law, but there are still friction points in the process. Is that fair? More than fair. So I'm, I'm going to um, actually take a risk and call out a couple people I know in the audience because I think you guys have thoughts on this and maybe even have tried patient, um, direct to patient recruitment. And I'm curious to know if anyone in the audience has tried a solution with direct patient recruitment where the patient could share their medical record. If you have, I'd love to hear from you. 
By the way, Jane, I'm assuming you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, the movie? Not the newest one. No, the, the original. Yes. You remember where they put the Ark in that gigantic warehouse? <laughs> yes, I do. Well, that's kind of probably like where they have to go and find the medical record for Christina Stanford and see if they can find it and retrieve it. I, like I have two imagery. hospitals involved, but... <laughs> it's, yeah, it's right next to the alien, right? In, I think in, for, for Halloween now, I'm going to be a Raiders of the Lost Ark character. <laughs> great. Um, hey Jane, I can speak to that if, if it's yeah, helpful. Please I have, do. Um, so I mentioned I'm in patient recruitment, so I work with a lot of sites to recruit patients for multiple trials. And um, we have asked people, we go direct to patients. So when I, I think what you're saying with direct to patient, and correct me if I'm wrong, but for instance, we run ads on social media. The patient is the one to respond to that ad. The patient is the one that our call center reaches out to and connects with and and ask for uh, for their medical records. Is that direct to patient in your mind? Absolutely. Okay. So with that in mind, uh, when we have asked for records, primarily vaccine records through COVID and things, people do have access to that and they're willing to share. Um, did you have any other specific questions maybe surrounding that? Well, you, I mean, if you're willing I to wish share, with that. go ahead, Christine. I was going to say, I worked with Sanguine a while back, um, and I appreciated working with them. They were a company that I signed up with them once, and then any opportunity for research that came along, they then had my information. They had a girl call me who was really, actually, I don't, I think she was a patient herself, but they called and they would let us know and talk to us. And I did enroll to quite a few studies through Sanguine and thought it was helpful at the time. They hadn't, we haven't had anything lately, but I enjoyed it. But then again, now that I think about it, was my diagnosis correct? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's another point as well, if you don't mind, Jane. Um, I think a lot of patients assume the medical industry has all their records and that it is consolidated, you know? like take a step back and watching my father go through his appointments with his doctors. Number one, as you know, Christine, it's an emotional event. You're not thinking clearly all the time because you're dealing with the emotions of it. Add that to the layer of the inherent trust of the medical field. And I'm not saying it's the wrong thing to do, but the misunderstanding that the documents and your records are all in one consolidated place. I think that's the majority of what I've seen from patients' expectations, perhaps I'm wrong, but watching my father go through that, the doctors each time asking him what his history was, he leaves things out, they write that in the medical records, you know, in the notes. I don't know that they actually looked for medical records unless I prompted them. Hey, he's had genetic tests, please get this record. Hey, he's had this test, please get these records. I think there's a, a lack of knowledge that the medical record in itself is disjointed on the patient's behalf as well. Well, it sounds like maybe also amongst the healthcare providers, Renee, right? In my experience. That's and you I've raise seen. a good point. Like my husband who is not sick was a willing participant along with me in the very first Pfizer vaccine trial for COVID 
And he came home with his consent form, which he thought was ludicrous. He's a scientist, by the way. And he said, so this means that all this data is going into my medical record now and my doctor's going to know. I was like, uh, no. He said, but it says that right here in the consent form, like your doctor will be informed and this information can be added to your records and we can query your records. I was like, hmm, that's not going to happen. And remember, they told you, you can't get the results of your COVID screening that they did as part of the entry procedures because the testing is going to happen in a very different way. And so if you think you're symptomatic, you have to go get tested elsewhere. But even the consent form led to confusion from someone who's a scientist around where data goes and who will see it. So Jane, um, just to point out the obvious here, we seem to be talking about the medical record as if it's something designed to diagnose a patient and help doctors actually know what's going on. Is that what we're really thinking it is? Probably in the same way that we think clinicaltrials.gov is meant to be a recruitment tool. So as we know, in the US, um, EHRs are really coding, right? <laughs> Literally for coding and really not designed in any way to be useful, frankly, for clinicians or to really manage a patient. So that, I mean, if we have to just acknowledge that, that that's what they were built for. I'll admit that because half my diagnoses were for coding. Hmm. So I think that's the first, I mean, that, that we just have to remember that context, right? That's where, so that's really not what they were built for at all. It's a really valid point that I sometimes do forget. So thank you. And I'll share another aha moment. Um, and I'll invite Dina up to the stage here as well. But um, for a bunch of reasons, I ended up having most of my clinical care through clinical trials for about four years. I was healthy, but that's just how I was accessing healthcare. And then when I did sign up for some of these direct-to-patient aggregation services, I realized there was nothing in my medical record about any clinical care I had received for those four years. It was something I understood stood theoretically, but I really didn't get until I went into the records and saw there's nothing there. So that's, that's a little bit of a twist on this because your medical record is not your clinical trial record, but I know there are some organizations working very hard to include clinical trial data, the individual data back to the medical record at the appropriate time in a trial. So Dina, please chime in. Okay. Hello, everybody. I'm really hot on this topic because I'm very surprised and disappointed that patients cannot get access to their records. Um, when I put myself back for pre-clinical research and I worked in the practice management field, as well as being a patient transferring from one physician to another, it was very simple signing a medical release form. This was before the digital age and having your records transferred via fax or paper 
to another doctor that you're going to see. And while it wasn't seamless, it, it happened and it typically happened in time. But when operating clinical research sites for the purpose of um, screening and um, eligibility, when we would request records from other doctor's offices uh, of participants that wanted to join trials, patients that wanted to drive to join trials, it, it seemed almost as if the, the doctor's offices that we were request, requesting records from with a release, we were treated differently and disrespected and didn't always get the records on time or you know, for eligibility and missed opportunities for patients to join trials. Also, just one other point is, you know, through HIPAA, my understanding is, is that a patient can change their record or ask for things to be omitted from their medical record. I'll say that's very difficult with the diagnosis. And then, um, and then can I touch on one other point? And I loved everything that you said, Dina. Sure. Um, I, was, I was recently in a longitudinal study and I did it through Stanford. I was diagnosed with COVID at one point. I had a surgery a couple days following. My PI called me and said, two weeks ago, you were positive. Um, you know, we just wanted to let you know. I said, I'm in the hospital right now. Should I let them know? So we put it, we put in a request. They did a test. I was still testing positive under PCR. So they rescheduled a surgery because we were not able to get the information from the study into my medical records, which then led me and my study coordinator to question because we thought if people aren't getting some of these diagnoses, especially on a study with COVID, into their medical records, what if something happens later down the line and they start developing symptoms, but there's no diagnoses of COVID because that was a study and the data didn't transfer? So. Just a thing to think about as well. That was exactly my aha moment being in the vaccine trial, Christine. It's like, oh, I'm not going to learn my COVID status. And if it changes, it's not going into my record. Yeah. And with COVID showing symptoms later and long COVID, I think that's something important that we have to think about. Absolutely. I'm not, this just also made me think about um, when doing trials, making sure that the, the sites put information in medical records, which hopefully you know, are transferable to, um, to hospitals and other physicians if, some, if an SAE were to happen, right? I mean, that, that part is, is on the site's responsibility to make sure that they document the record if they have access to a record, meaning like if the patient was at a practice that was conducting clinical research, then the, the common practice would be to document the record saying that this patient is in a clinical trial if there you know, happens to be any um, SAE or, or AEs, you know, please contact us before treating or not before treating, but, you know, contact us so, you know, we can collaborate with, with treatment plans and, and let, give you all the information you know, and obviously uh, be able to report timely to an IRB if there was something. But it didn't always happen, right? And you know, I think this is a, 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 
an instance where information, important safety information could be missed, just to add on to everything else that has been brought up during this very interesting conversation about medical records. Yes, and I was on a call not too long ago with some people from NIH who called that problem out directly, Dina. So they're interested in information interoperability within the records in part because they know that they don't always get all the safety events and all of the pertinent information from treating physicians going back to the PIs conducting the trials. Now, I don't know if that puts anything at risk. They were just raising it as another friction point in the research process. So we do have digital data. It is incomplete and inconsistent. Sometimes it might even be wrong, but it sounds like we still want patients to have the ability to get it and share it at will. Who wants to say in a few words, again, why this is important and why we should keep advocating for it? I'll just say everybody talks about precision medicine, but the realization is we will never get there unless we have enough data. And, and I'll challenge you and say accurate medicine because... Yes, we accurate <laughs> medicine. <laughs> Um, that's another story for another day, but until patients can get that information in a way that they can share, I think we will limit the possibilities for patients to participate in trials, which slows down the entire research and drug development enterprise. And we haven't even touched on any of the international um, challenges, or maybe it's maybe it's actually easier in some other healthcare systems. So, um, thank you everyone for joining. Thank you especially to Christine for sharing your story and all of the challenges as well as the learnings you've had. For Renee, thank you for sharing about your journey, both professionally and personally, around helping patients access their information for both treatment and for trials. And Dina, I really appreciated your insights to how that request for medical records was received um, when you were operating clinical research sites as opposed to when you were a patient trying to get your records and move from one practice to another. That's a really interesting um, phenomenon. Amir, Last words from you? Well, I really appreciate the conversation. I think this is a very important topic that I'm sure we'll come back to. I appreciate everyone who uh, turned up. Yes, thank you so much, everyone. And next week, join us for a conversation on data, DCTs, and oncology, which I'm really looking forward to. In the meantime, Please follow us here and see if you can find our podcast on any platform where you consume podcasts. It'll come up under DCTs. Thanks so much. Have a Thanks great for weekend. having me. Bye-bye. Thanks, Christine. Yeah. Bye. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.